the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, who desires not the death of the wicked, convert those who hate us without a cause, and turn the hearts of those who persecute your Christians. Protect the poor and the innocent against the oppression of unjust men. Grant us patience under the cross and preserve us in the true faith all the days of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And that's the psalm prayer for this week, Psalm 54. Our Bible verse in the congregation at prayer, or it's on the board, is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and it is the end of the epistle appointed for this ninth Sunday after Trinity. So if you recall the... If you're in the first service, especially, or if you read it sometime during this week, the beginning of the epistle assigned for this day is a warning against the impenitence and unbelief displayed by the children of Israel who followed after their lusts and their appetites, and so many of them fell, dying in impenitence in the wilderness. So those served as an example for us, lest we are led astray by our own covetous, sinful nature. Then comes this verse. So let's speak it together. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. A temptation is, as we have said before under the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, any kind of word or will or desire that says you can't trust God. Now, in the case of the appetites and lusts of the children of Israel... We can't trust God to provide for us. We want this. We want that. And they followed after the covetous desires, the fleshly desires of their heart. Okay? So in every temptation is always, you can't trust God. You're going to have to take matters in your own hands. You're going to have to dishonor your father and your mother. You're going to have to commit adultery because he's not giving you the wife or the husband that you, that you want. Or you're going to have to steal. Or you're going to have to... Since he's not punishing my neighbor, I'll punish him by bearing false witness against him, by slandering him, because God's not doing the job. Okay? Or I'll scheme to get my neighbor's inheritance or house, because I want it. And I'll be filled with envy and hatred against him, because he has something that I want. So behind every temptation, though, is this idea that God is not providing. You can't trust him. So if you understand that, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Since the Garden of Eden, that has been the fundamental temptation of the evil one. Did God really say? Did God claim to love you? He doesn't love you. He, he claims to provide for you everything that you need. That's a lie. Eat of this, you'll be like God. You'll finally have fulfillment. Okay? So this has been common to man, suffering those temptations since the fall into sin. But God is faithful. Now, link this, this concept of faithfulness to his word. 
to his promise. You know, back in the garden, eat of this, you'll be like God. And he doesn't want you to be like him. <clears throat> Excuse me, evil one. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We are already like him. Now, we're not God, but we are like him. We're made in his image and likeness. Newsflash, the devil lies to you. And he lies often by taking an element of truth and twisting it. They would know good and evil, but in the same way that a man would know what it was like to be a fornicator and an adulterer if he went in with a prostitute. He would know it, but then it doesn't make him smarter. Okay? So God is faithful to his word. He can be trusted. He is trustworthy. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able and the ability to endure the temptation comes from God's word. Okay? That's what makes us able. That's what gives us strength. So what we need in the face of temptation are the words and promises of God to which then our faith clings and in prayer our faith cries out to God to give that which he himself has promised. Okay, so he is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, there's always opportunity to escape. By the word that was implanted in you, in your catechesis, that the Spirit of God reminds you of in your conscience, with the temptation, he will make the way of escaping the temptation so that you are able to bear it in repentant faith and not in unbelief. Ultimately, that way of escape is in the man, this man, Christ Jesus, who has suffered every temptation not to trust his father, even to the point of losing everything in his death, rather than fall away, but in so doing, in his faithfulness, he gained eternal life and salvation with his father. So ultimately, the way of escape is in Jesus and in the words of God in his promises for us. So let's speak the passage again. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So from the epistle, these these uh, passages during the summertime when school is not in section tend to be a little bit longer, but you can handle it for the summertime. Okay. And then our verse for the week is the sixth petition. And lead us not into temptation. God tempts no one. What a relief. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, 
we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. And there is a catechism prayer able to be included in the congregation at prayer this week. Heavenly Father, lead us out of temptation, guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. So that is the catechism prayer for the week. And we continue walking through Matthew's gospel in the Bible narratives. Any questions from the past on the congregation at prayer, like this last week you were reading readings or what we've said today moving forward? Uh, people have been asking about the convention, so I thought I should talk about the convention then. Uh, before doing that, though, I do want to encourage you to attend Janine Gable's funeral. Uh, Janine had several years ago suffered what you might call a minor hemorrhagic stroke that she um, recovered somewhat from, but she suffered a major one um, on Monday morning. And then um, she finally uh, died on Tuesday morning. Uh, Janine and Al have been members of the congregation since 1976. Uh, they were both uh, long-time uh, contributing members to the choir and to other things that went around, on around here. Um, so Al has been widowed. Many of you will know that Al built um, just about everything made out of wood in the congregation. Uh, all of the tables in the narthex, the uh, hymn boards, and of course, most significant, the altar and the pulpit and the lectern. He um, was diagnosed with stomach cancer back in 2009 and had tremendous chemotherapy, heroic treatment, and a massive surgery where his stomach is up here. He weighs about 85 pounds, but he's still with us. I visit him and I was visiting Janine uh, as shut-ins. Uh, so the person we thought was in worse health and would not be among us much longer was Al and the person who was taken from this veil of tears first was Janine. Janine played the violin uh, at lessons and carol service, sang in the alto section in the choir uh, until her stroke made it difficult for her to sing. And uh, Al and she sang in the choir as long as they were physically able. So it's a good opportunity because we have a service that visitation is 3.30 to 5.30, which means that a lot of people who may work could come at 5.30 and support uh, the family. All right, uh, the convention. Um, I wasn't here last Sunday because I was in Milwaukee for the convention. Um, I, I did get a week's vacation up at Joanne Smith's. That was very nice. And then uh, the last over a week, I've been either at the convention or, or doing other things. Uh, in addition to being the voting delegate for our circuit, I was also named to the floor committee, Life Together, and then uh, was asked by President Harrison to do two 20-minute 
sections on the catechism to actually catechize the whole delegation. There's about 1,100 voting delegates and a couple of hundred advisory delegates at the convention. And it's in what's now called the, um, well, now I don't know if I can remember. It used to be the Midwest Express Center, the Baird, Baird Convention Center. And uh, so the way, this is the chief legislative body of the synod. It passes resolutions by majority vote. Uh, it's made up of pastoral delegates and lay delegates. There's a pastoral delegate and a lay delegate elected from every circuit of the synod. Um, a circuit is made up of seven to ten congregations. Our circuit includes Emmanuel Brookfield, Zion Menominee Falls. Uh, it includes Beautiful Savior Waukesha, Christ the Life in Waukesha, Brookfield Lutheran, um, us, Elm Grove Lutheran, not Grace. So that's our circuit, and uh, at the circuit forum last fall, I was elected the pastoral delegate to represent our circuit, and then laymen from any of those congregations would have been eligible uh, to be elected. Uh, a man from Elm Grove was elected to be our lay delegate. Out of the pool of uh, voting delegates, it's the responsibility of the president of the synod to appoint floor committees. And floor committees work like committees of Congress. You know, so the House Ways and Means Committee, for example, you know, they, they meet and they have hearings on the budget, you know, or whatever, or the uh, Judiciary Committee on Judicial Appointments. Well, in a similar way, the floor committees, and there were 13 of them, I believe, made up of 10 to 13 members, they are the ones that receive overtures, which are like resolutions. They're overtures from congregations, circuits, districts, entities of individuals. They come in by the first uh, part of March, and then they're divided up among those floor committees. Because you could have overtures submitted by districts and congregations and circuits three, four, five on the same topic. So it's the responsibility of the floor committee to receive those overtures, to read, mark, inwardly digest them, and then to propose a resolution on the basis of those overtures to be brought to the Senate. The complicated thing in convention, the complicated thing is a floor committee can receive overtures on two sides of an issue. You know? One that wants to do this, another that wants to do the exact opposite. So the floor committees met in the end of May, first part of June, in St. Louis over a weekend. And it was uh, three days of meeting together, going through all of these overtures that were assigned to each respective committee. Out of that, there, was, there were resolutions produced and published in what's called Today's Business, which is then sent to all of the delegates. It's also available to anyone in the Synod to look at online. So there's the convention workbook, which was published and distributed the first part of April. And then the first issue of Today's Business at the beginning of June. 
And that gives delegates time to read over the resolutions proposed by the floor committees. They're also given the right to then forward their concerns, even in advance of the convention, to floor committees to have them take up concerns. So our chairman, for example, had a half a dozen emails or so, as well as some phone conversations um, about the resolutions that came out of our floor committee. Prior to the plenary session of the convention, which began with a divine service on Saturday night, and then we had matins Sunday morning, then immediately we went into session. Prior to the plenary session, there were on Friday and Saturday floor committee meetings. Friday's meetings were open hearings. And the open hearings allowed delegates to come and we all had a room. The floor committee sits up in front like in Congress. You know, they have the, uh, the committee hearings and then there's people out there and then they talk to the committee. They express their gratitude or their discomfort with whatever resolution they wanted to talk about assigned to that floor committee. And then it was our job to, between Friday and Saturday, to digest anything that we heard and decide, are we going to make any changes or adjustments to the resolutions that fall under us? Our floor committee um, initially made no adjustments. Uh, and then at the opening of the convention, we were the first floor committee, and someone objected and made a stink about the first resolution we presented, there was a substitute motion, and then it was referred back to the committee. So we had to meet during the convention to address that particular issue, and then finally it was brought forward on the last day of the convention, together with all of the other overtures that our committee uh, was not able to present. So that's how the process goes, and um, uh, if you have any questions about that, you can ask. Sometimes it's helpful to know the process. But all of the overtures were published and available for anyone to look at in the convention workbook by the beginning of April. And then the Today's Business, the first issue, was published the beginning of June, which means that by the end of July, I mean, no one can say, we, this is too much to digest. We just got this. No, you didn't just get it. Okay. Um, so there were a number of resolutions that were like resolution 401A. And A would mean that it's a revision. Something was added or taken away from it from its original publication in June. But those changes tended to be relatively minor. At the convention, all of the resolutions brought forward by the floor committee were passed with the exception of one. The one that wasn't passed had to do with establishing a task force to explore whether or not the Synod should move from a three-year cycle of conventions to a four-year cycle. Bless you. In its presentation to the uh, plenary convention, the floor committee said, we are ambivalent about this question. But since overtures were brought forward, 
we thought forming a task force to explore whether or not it should happen and to make recommendations would be the most, uh, would be the best way to go. But the convention said, no, we don't want a task force. So it'll stay as a three-year cycle, which um, I voted for. If for no other reason then, if you go to a four-year cycle, the whole handbook has to be changed because all of these terms of office and so forth, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a labyrinth, it's a spaghetti of, of things that get changed. And also, I think that it just keeps the work of the synod more distant from the congregations and districts the longer between conventions. Philip? Uh, yes, right. That's the main. That's the main objective. Does it cost a lot of money? Congregations pay for it through their assessment every three years. Pat, do you remember what our assessment was for the convention? Twelve hundred dollars. I'm not sure. Number sounds right. Something like that. Twelve hundred dollars. So that's depending on the size of the congregation. What were the major uh, things that that went on? Um, uh, a couple of conventions ago, well, in 2010, as a matter of fact, um, as a part of restructuring, we moved from electing the synodical president at the convention to electing the synodical president by electronic ballot uh, a number of weeks before. The former way was the delegates at the convention elected the president. The current way, which it still is, is that every congregation in the synod is entitled to a pastoral and a lay vote. So President Harrison was reelected uh, since restructuring entirely by this process of nominations are made by congregations, and then congregations through their pastoral vote and lay vote elect the synodical president. He then, in turn, from the nominations given for first vice president, which is a full-time position, the first vice president uh, deals especially with things like colloquy. In other words, if you've got a Wisconsin synod pastor who wants to be a Missouri synod pastor, there are a series of interviews and on the basis of those interviews, there's perhaps a program of study for him to go through to be colloquized and become a part of the ministerium of the synod. So the first vice president is in charge of the colloquy program. He serves on, on a number of uh, commissions and uh, committees. He also is there uh, to serve in the absence of the president. The first vice president's job is a full-time job. Uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth are not. They are parish pastors or professors, and that is entirely a volunteer, a volunteer thing. Uh, but after the president is elected, then from the candidates listed as first vice president, he is to select five. Why does he get to select? The idea was that he needs to be able to work with the first vice president. But of the five that he chooses, two of them have to be 
in the top five nominees for that position. You understand? So that they're still being deferential to the congregations that have nominated first vice presidents. So um, he selected his five, they were available, and we voted that was the, the first election for boards or vice presidents or other officers was the first vice presidency. And Peter Lang, <coughs> uh, who had been our first vice president, remains in that position. All the rest of the five vice presidents underneath Peter Lang were reelected. Then the convention orders them second vice president, third vice president, fourth. There was some shuffling around in the numbers, but the presidium, as it's called, was retained from what it had been. So that is nice from the standpoint of continuity of administration and so forth. Um, what were the major issues? And then I'll open it up for questions. Uh, the establishing of fellowship with a number of churches, Lutheran churches overseas. Uh, the Lutheran, I don't have the exact names before me, but there's Lutheran Church in Ukraine. A fellowship was established there. In Africa, Uganda, uh, Sudan, a number of others, fellowship was established with them. There was also one church body with whom we were in fellowship, uh, the Lutheran Church of Japan. And we severed fellowship with that church body because of their stance on the authority of scripture and their move to begin to ordain uh, women to the office of the ministry. So um, that was a sad thing, but fellowship was suspended with them. But there were five churches with whom fellowship was established. That's a process that involves the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, as well as the president of the synod and the presidium, president of the synod being the chief uh, ecclesiastical supervisor. Okay? When there is a break in fellowship, is there a process that potentially that could be amended? Or what, what does that look like? Yeah, there, is there a process for which it, it can be amended? Absolutely. It's the same process that results in establishing fellowship in the first place. Okay. You know, that there's, that there's talks, that there's appeals to the president of the synod, to the Commission on Theology of church and Church Relations. Uh, this has been an issue that's been ongoing for well over a decade, and they have been not only persistent, but have finally voted to do this. And so that's why the fellowship was suspended. Uh, the other biggest issue had to do with the Concordia University system. And the Concordia University system um, is supposed to involve all of our Concordia universities, colleges. And the CUS, as it's called, Concordia University System, was intended to be a general clearinghouse oversight body for all of the Concordias. Um, what this convention, but, but the, the bylaws, the handbook, the rules that govern what that looks like was unclear and muddy. So what essentially the new bylaws do, which passed by well over 80%, is that the Concordia University system defers 
temporal left-hand kingdom responsibility to the boards of regents of the respective concordias, but retains oversight of spiritual right-hand kingdom issues. How? Well, by every concordia will undergo every three years uh, a systematic visitation for the sake of ascertaining is the school being faithful to the word of God, the Lutheran confessions, and to file a report for them to address any areas of shortcoming. It also will carry with it an accreditation so that you have to be accredited by the CUS, Concordia University system, which means your doctrine and practice is in a line with the synod so that you can certify church workers, um, which would be teachers, deaconesses, uh, DCEs, directors of parish music, directors of evangelism, etc., as well as pre-seminary programs. So the Concordia University system will be focused on that and ongoing regular visitations of the Concordias. As you know, there was uh, no small kerfuffle over wokeism uh, on the campus of CUWAA, uh, particularly came, coming to a head with the search for their new president. And there was a presidential visitation that took place and a very extensive report issued by President Harrison to the Board of Regents at CUW. Uh, an abridged version of that was uh, leaked to the general public and has been out there. But it drew attention. No one except the Board of Regents and the administration has seen the full report. Uh, but the abridged report drew attention to some serious issues with uh, CUW uh, relative to uh, a creeping woke ideology. Now, um, to, to set aside the convention just for a moment, um, out of that uh, visitation, there was a backtracking of the Board of Regents uh, so that the presidential search was allowed to go forward. Um, and the three candidates for president were deemed to be quite uh, solid confessional men. Uh, Dr. Eric Ankerberg was eventually chosen. He has subsequently filled a number of the dean positions with very solid uh, theologians. And so that's, that is a good sign. So that's kind of uh, what has been happening there. When it came to the convention, uh, it, the CUS revision of the bylaws question to, 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 to make the CUS, Concordia University System, more effective and salutary for the church has actually been going on for about 10 years. And it came to a head at this convention. Remember, the Synod and Convention only meets every three years. So uh, it's been going on for about 10 years, and it finally resulted in these substantive bylaws. Um, three years ago, there were nine concordias. 
right now there's six or five, depending on how you count it. Because Concordia University, Texas in Austin, their Board of Regents voted to sever themselves from the Synod and any Synod governance. Um, I happen to have gone to college with the president uh, of there. Uh, it, it began with the election of a CEO rather than a president. To elect a president of a Concordia, it requires the endorsement of the president of the Synod as well as district president and board of regents. But that board of regents appointing board members of their own secured a significant majority, which were much more liberal in orientation. And because the bylaw said a president has to be approved by the president of the synod as well as the district president and so forth, they opted to appoint a CEO. So he's CEO, he's not the president, which is what we call a distinction without a difference. And um, in time, President Harrison finally acquiesced and said, as a gesture of goodwill, fine, Dr. Christian is, is your president then. But over the last years, culminating with last year and then reaffirmed this spring, the Board of Regents voted to sever itself from the Synod as a, as a member school of the Synod and be responsible entirely for its own governance and answerable to nothing in the church. Um, there are no church work students, as I understand it, at Concordia, Texas right now. Um, and the drift of that institution into where so many of our institutions across the country are going, like Valparaiso used to be a Lutheran school. Polly, did you go to Valparaiso? No, oh. I am <laughs> John did. Oh, no. Um, what happened to Valparaiso? Valparaiso used to be with us, but now it is an independent, quasi-Lutheran, but extremely liberal university. So if Austin is out of the picture, I said three years ago we had nine. Concordia Portland, Concordia Selma, Alabama, Concordia Bronxville, then Concordia Austin, Texas. All of those schools suffered from grievous fiscal crises. But they also had something else in common. On the campus of Concordia Portland, there were gay and lesbian student groups, which were endorsed and allowed to be there by the administration and the Board of Regents. Uh, same is true of Concordia Bronxville, New York. So in addition to fiscal problems, there was serious um, and egregious doctrine and life issues that departed from what it was to be 
uh, Lutheran. Uh, the strongest Concordias are Irvine, Seward, Chicago, and Mequon Ann Arbor, which is one school, essentially, uh, right now. And then Saint Concordia St. Paul. So at the convention, um, all of those five presidents uh, from Concordia, University of Wisconsin, Ann Arbor, River Forest or Chicago, St. Paul, Minnesota, Seward, Nebraska, and Irvine, all five were on stage. All five gave a ringing endorsement to the Concordia University system bylaw changes, which are really about, more than anything else, retaining a strong confessional Lutheran identity at our Concordias. Um, there's a history here that, that, that goes, well, I, let me say this then too. Then when it came to elections, this convention elected four regents, a pastoral regent, a commission minister regent, and two lay regents to each of those boards of regents, including Texas, which we hope and pray will allow to be seated on that board. Um, districts typically elect four regions. So our South Wisconsin district last year elected four regions, very strong candidates. This synodical convention elected four regions. That's a total of eight. To help retain the Lutheran identity, some of the Concordias in the past had the practice of then the board could elect it additional regions, which would all have a vote. Uh, which, of course, what that does is the more regions that they would elect, the more potential there is for uh, moving away from the synod because you've got elected regents not by the synod's districts and synod and convention, but by board members. One of the resolutions passed at this convention was that only those regents elected by the district or the synod and convention can vote to approve or not approve appointed regents. Do you follow that? So that even if there would be four or five regents appointed, only though, and another, we want to appoint another one, only those who were elected by the synod and convention or the district and convention could vote on those. The idea being to keep it close more closely connected to the church and her, uh, and her pastors. L let me say one word about um, why is it difficult for a college or university to retain its Lutheran identity? One could argue that we had too many universities. Because what makes a university Lutheran is not simply a strong theology faculty, but other members of the faculty and other departments are also committed Missouri Synod Lutheran Christians. You know, in the science department, in the athletic department, in the English department, or whatever the department happens to be. But the more Concordias there are, with the demographics that there are, it is hard to find Lutherans. So more and more Concordias acquiesce to getting others in there, and in some cases they're not even 
Christian. And so they're subject to the uh, breeze and the winds of culture. Uh, how did that happen? Well, this goes back to the time we'll be reserving the 50th anniversary of the walkout in St. Louis uh, when this faculty majority left. And we had a lot of junior colleges. And then we had a senior college in Fort Wayne, which was also a hotbed for the liberal theology, the denying of the authority of scripture, uh, divine inspiration, and so forth. One of the solutions to the problem was to close the senior college. But one of the unintended consequences is then a lot of the junior colleges then were moved to four-year colleges. And uh, again, you have the potential for a watering down of the faculty in terms of, of actually having Lutherans. Did you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask if the CUS included the seminaries in it, and if anything brought up the uh, Wyoming separatist movement. Uh, the Wyoming separatist movement was not well, the brought up. Classical college. I mean, are they involved in the CUS at all? No. Did, was, was it, did anybody even bring it up? No. Wow. It was not brought up. And the, the seminaries do not fall under the CUS, but under pastoral ministry of the Synod. Polly. I don't know the answer to that question. Yes. Pastor, yeah. is there a summary of resolutions that comes out at the end that could be read to understand? Yeah, we, uh, I hope to do that. We'll, have a, we'll schedule another more um, uh, full reporting where that can be done. Okay, according to each floor committee category of resolution. Okay. Any other uh, questions? I would, uh, if you are interested, um, Lutheran Public Radio, Issues Etc. did three podcasts, and I thought they were well done. On the convention, uh, they involve uh, interviews with attorney Halverson and Stern, and a lot of what they talk about has to do with the Concordia University system. So, yes, Larry. Correct. St. Louis, Concordia Seminary St. Louis, Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne. They train pastors and deaconesses for work in the synod. They also offer advanced degrees, STM degrees, uh, Doctor of Divinity degrees, and THDs and PhDs, depending on which school. Well, Fort Wayne as a senior college was closed. Uh, Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne began one year earlier than Concordia Seminary St. Louis. And it began in Fort Wayne. And then during the war between the states, the Civil War, to avoid 
conscription into the Union Army, the school was moved from Fort Wayne to St. Louis. So we had two seminaries in St. Louis simultaneously. Okay? And then, it was a year or two into the war, then it moved a little bit north to Springfield, Illinois. So the Fort Wayne Seminary began in Fort Wayne, moved during the Civil War to St. Louis, then moved to Springfield, and it remained at Springfield until 1974, I believe. And in 1974, when the senior college in Fort Wayne was going to be closed, the dilapidated buildings in Springfield needing great attention, they moved the seminary back to Fort Wayne, and for one year, Concordia uh, Senior College and Concordia Theological Seminary existed simultaneously on the same campus, which was quite a mix of people. And then the senior college closed, and the seminary has been there ever since. Yes? Who owns the individual properties, campuses, buildings? Yeah, it, it depends on... Um, it depends on the school, who owns the buildings and the property. So the entity itself belongs to the synod, the entity of the school. But the physical generally is governed by the boards of regents and the laws of the state in which they're incorporated. So if someone leaves, yeah, uh, if, if someone leaves, is there dissolution and buyout? It all depends on which Concordia you're talking about. Yeah. All right, that's uh, a little bit of a of a primer, but <coughs> I would say all in all, the convention went uh, tremendously well, and then in terms of outcomes, especially. Right. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.